The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Are you looking for a new and empowering lens through which to view your life and your health? Then register now for Get Healthy with Sound, a weekend workshop with Eileen McCusick, an innovator in the fields of therapeutic sound, electric health, and the human biofield. May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn easy and accessible techniques to reduce stress, improve focus, and increase energy. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive. Discover the power within. Unity Online Radio. The voice of an awakening world. eat better, get healthy, and help animals. Welcome to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. I can remember hearing a woman's place is in the home. And although I don't think I ever heard it articulated, I certainly heard in a symbolic way a vegan's places in the juice bar or the yoga studio or the gardening co-op. Well, guess what? We're out. My first guest today is an attorney and my second, a state representative, both vegans making noise and making a difference. Hi, everybody. Victoria Moran here. Welcome to the Main Street Vegan Program. Even in our eighth month of sheltering in place, we have not missed an episode because whatever is going on around us, there is something greater going on within us. And that is our commitment to bring about a kinder, saner, healthier, safer world through rational food choices. So to that end, it is my pleasure to introduce today's first guest, Peter Brandt. Peter is a litigator at the Humane Society of the United States, where his work focuses on litigation aimed at protecting farmed animals. He has taught farm animal law at Lewis and Clark Law School and was a fellow with Harvard Law School's Animal Law and Policy Program. But even before attending law school, he was writing on animal protection issues for the Los Angeles Times, the San Francisco Examiner, and Salon. His book, his fabulous and I dare say perfect book, we'll talk about that more in a bit, is Indefensible Adventures of a Farm Animal Protection Lawyer. Welcome, Peter Brandt. Hi, thank you so much. Well, thank you so much for writing this book. When I first heard about it, I thought, oh, this is just a book about the issues. Well, it's certainly about the issues, but the issues are packaged in the most delightful stories, the the most interesting ways to look at even horrible, horrible things that the word delightful would be a travesty to have in the same sentence. 
and yet you have humor, you have life. It, it really is just a brilliant, brilliant book. I hope everybody buys it, Indefensible Adventures of a Farm Animal Protection Lawyer. So, Peter, before we get to the book, before we get to right now, tell us about way back when. How did you become the person that you are? Um, that's a great question. First of all, I'm blushing from that introduction. Thank you very much. Um, uh, yeah, how did I get this way? Um, I don't know. You know, I had a pretty regular childhood. Um, I, I never, I was, I, I was one of those kids that was really into animals, very fascinated by them and really into the family dachshund we had growing up and, um, and from an early age, really not happy about eating meat. Uh, I don't think I really connected all the dots. I just, part of it was I just didn't like it. But um, that's something, you know, my, my, my parents, they were great. But this was, you know, the late 70s, early 80s. And um, they listened to me and then kept serving me what they thought they were supposed to be serving me. <laughs> So it wasn't until college, like so many people, uh, when I went out on my own that I, you know, started reading books like Diet for a New America and, um, you know, of course, Peter Singer, Animal Liberation um, and um, Tom Regan. Those were the big ones, I think, for me. And I was just kind of uh, off on this path ever since. So you were, would you call yourself an animal rights activist or advocate? And then what motivated you to go to law school? Um, yeah, I wanted to be an activist, um, uh, which is also, you know, it's, I think it's something that's easy to entertain that option when you grow up with a lot of privilege, probably also. Um, I had quite a safety net. Um you know, my dad was a bankruptcy attorney. Both my parents worked for much of my life. Um, but I always wanted to be an activist. I didn't want to just have a boring, what I used to call my my childhood friend and I used to call a paper shuffling job. Yes. Um, I just didn't want to do, like I didn't understand how, I still don't understand how people do a lot of these jobs and they have my sympathy. The ironic thing is like, most of what I do could be classified as paper shuffling at this point. Um, it's on a screen, but it's the same kind of, you know, it's a lot of writing, a lot of paper. Well, it's interesting that so many of the lawyers that I know preface that with recovering or uh, yeah. <laughs> something of, of that nature. And yet you have found a way to enter into a profession that really suits some people and really does not suit some other people. And it's allowing you to, to be you. So tell us about being an animal rights lawyer. Yeah, it is interesting. Like I sometimes talk about law school as like a non-surgical lobotomy. Um, you know, it does something to you. <laughs> um, uh, and I also think uh, I was a much funnier person before I went to law school. Um, and then your brain kind of gets rewired and you learn to think, but you also learn to write in a very particular way that 
ironically is sometimes not very persuasive and puts people to sleep, you know, which is the last thing you want to be doing as a lawyer. But you you learn how to write in um, a, a sort of academic way. And I had to I had to sort of rewire myself a little bit to try to write this book to be, you know, in legal writing, you often the very beginning of the document or the paragraph, you tell the reader exactly where you're going. If you do that in a story, nobody cares, you know, <laughs> like, so I had to sort of unlearn that, like, yeah, you don't want them to know exactly where they're going because that sort of, it's like putting the punchline at the beginning of the joke. So is, is being an animal rights lawyer a, something to which a young person might aspire you know, you think about, okay, if you're a corporate lawyer, you're paid by a corporation. If you're a divorce lawyer, you're paid by people getting a divorce. But if you're an animal rights lawyer, the animals aren't paying. Yeah, so they never pay. how, how is this discipline of animal law growing, which it obviously is? You know, it's tricky. Uh, and I think sort of the, the whole world of nonprofit advocacy lawyers, whether you're um, an environmental lawyer or an animal animal protection lawyer working for a nonprofit group, a lot of it is tied somewhat to what the rest of the economy is doing. And, you know, when there is a big downturn, like in a recession and law firms are not hiring people or letting people go, it also impacts nonprofit groups. And it's just, it's a tough area. If somebody in college came to me and said they wanted to make a difference, I wouldn't try to talk them out of going to law school, but I think you need to go into it with your eyes open, um, especially in the U.S. where, you know, it's just staggering to me that, like, the co everybody knows this, but the cost of any kind of higher education is just crippling, Um and then the salary for a nonprofit lawyer is so low. So uh, there is some there is some growth potential, and I hope that there's a lot more. Um, but it's definitely not the only way. If you're thinking of getting a, a degree, a post-college degree, it's, it, there are, I would consider other things as well. Yeah, well, at least we can read about the adventures of being an animal protection lawyer in, in your book. So you said you think that you were funnier before law school. I, I, I can't imagine what that must have been like, because you're pretty funny now. I mean, your your book is just, it's it's full of really smart humor, which I absolutely loved. So why did you choose this informal kind of style for a book on such a serious topic? Um, it was, uh, um, I wanted to have fun writing it myself and I wanted it to be a challenge and it's, it's a challenge to write any, anything I think that's, that's worthwhile, I think is, should be a little bit difficult to write, but, um, as a lawyer, you know, you just, I've been doing this a long time. You get to the point where it's not hard for me to write in the sort of, um, academic or formal style and do it really pretty well. Um, 
but I kind of like I was saying before, I don't think it's the most engaging thing in the world. Um, and, um, it's a real challenge to just for me to try to write in a more narrative fashion, to have dialogue and to have sort of personal and humorous stuff that that's really difficult. Um, and then it's just a crazy idea when you're talking about horrible things like slaughter facilities or, you know, calves who are freezing to death on a transport truck to a slaughter establishment. It's really difficult to weave in humor. So I, I liked the challenge of that. And I also, I wanted to write a book that when I was 18, I would have loved to find. Yeah. Um, you know. Well, you really succeeded because it's very hard to read this stuff. And I've been in this world of animal protection for a very, very long time. And I feel like I had thicker skin earlier on. I think of some of the things I did back in the 90s, going to chicken farms and slaughterhouses. I couldn't do that today. And today I don't want to just read unmitigated suffering but I can read your book the way you write it and get all the way through and be really glad that, that I did. So you, you've done something wonderful in my opinion. Were there books that influenced you uh, as you started to write? Um, yeah. Uh, it's funny. I knew about this one book because it was written by a comedian who also happens to be vegan. And I, I really liked her stand-up work. Her name's Sarah Pascoe. Um, she's from the UK and so I knew she wrote a book and I knew it was sort of a memoir, but also included a lot of science. Um, the book is called animal, um, the subtitle is the autobiography of a female body. <laughs> and so I knew it was out there. And as I was, I started to write, I'd already written three or four chapters and I finally got a hold of a copy of it and it was exactly what I thought it was going to be. And it's, I think it's a brilliant book. Um, so I like to say that I'd already written like three or four chapters because if you read her book and then you read mine, you'd think I just completely ripped off her style. Uh, but I was, it, I'm sure it had a big influence on me. Um, and, um, yeah. And then a lot of fiction. Um, I read a lot of, um, this Irish um, writer, Roddy Doyle, um, and I always loved his use of dialogue, uh, and that that definitely was a big influence on me. And the, there's not a lot of dialogue in the book, to be honest, but those are some of my favorite parts of the book. Yes. Well, dialogue is tough if you tend to nonfiction. I, yeah, I always think that the real writers are, are the ones who can write dialogue. I'm reminded of, have you read The Skeptical Vegan by Eric Lindstrom? No. That, um, that is yeah. a knee-slapping memoir oh, <laughs> of okay. how this gentleman became vegan. So, yeah, you might want to take a look at that. I oh, think definitely. you guys are somewhat on the same vein. So, so let's get into the book and some of the stories and some of the points. You talk about Ivan, a gorilla. He's held captive in a mall. He's, he's become famous. He was a character in a young adult novel He's in a, and a character in a film. But what's your connection to Ivan? Yeah. Uh, so he was in 
a mall in my hometown, Tacoma, Washington, much maligned Tacoma, Washington, um, sort of in the shadow of Seattle. Um, and as a teenager, I would go to the mall and um, there was Ivan and just this terrible, it was like a reinforced like bulletproof glass or something cage in the middle of a sort of shopping mall with a painted jungle background behind him. And um, I didn't know much about him back then, um, but I, you know, I remember seeing him as a teenager. And then when I was getting out of college, uh, my dad, who, as I said, was a bankruptcy lawyer, I was talking to him because uh, I was considering law school. I wanted to do animal law. And he's like, well, you're, there's not a lot of cases, you know, animals don't come up very often in cases. And um, shortly after that, he became a bankruptcy judge. And then he was the judge that with the mall went bankrupt. He was the judge dealing with that bankruptcy. Wow. Um, and to this day, I think it's the most famous animal law bankruptcy case by far. Um, because the big fight was what's going to happen to Ivan, you know, because, you know, the law really just treats him as an asset. And um, so, yeah, he was suddenly like in the Wall Street Journal. He was showing up in newspapers in Paris. My dad was um, Michael Jackson wanted to, to take Ivan. Um, so it became this really weird international news item. Um, but I like to I, I I included it in the book because people so often focus on just how terrible his life was in the mall, and I think that's right, but you don't hear as much about how he got to the mall, which is somebody shot his mom probably right in front of him and put him and his sister in a box and put him on a plane to Tacoma, Washington, which is crazy, and... Um, a terrible idea. Uh, and I think that's where everything went wrong for him. Like you got, you have to get to the root, the first series of events, the first bad decisions. And so much of, so much of the discourse about um, sort of meat production or animal products in general operates from this false premise of, well, of course we have to keep doing this. We, we got to eat, you know, like, therefore we must raise 9 billion chickens and kill them all. Um, so it, all, it starts from a bad decision. <laughs> and if you don't examine the bad decision at the very beginning, you end up buying into a like, well, maybe there's ways to make this or that better. And maybe there are, but you should ask the fundamental question, why are we doing this, you know, which I know that's nothing new for, for you to think about um, and your listeners probably. But um, so that's how I sort of, uh, it's a bit of a stretch, but that's how I sort of connect the, the Ivan story in the book to, to farm animals. Uh, they're, they're all connected, just like we're all connected, which is why I, I don't understand why this continues to be such a hard sell. So one of the things that you talk about a lot in, in the book, you lay it out in the introduction, and that is this underlying theme that harming animals harms humans. How and 
how can we sell it? How can we get this into people's psyches, even as something for them to consider? You know, I'm not going to say it's a silver lining. It's terrible what's going on with with COVID-19, obviously. But I think before 2020, you had a lot of work to do to get people to understand that cramming a bunch of animals in cages very close to each other might end up being a human public health disaster on a global scale. Um, People did brilliant work trying to get the public to connect those dots, but it's just, it's difficult. Now, everyone around the world, you know, it's pretty, pretty uh, agreed upon at this point that we're dealing with a worldwide deadly virus that began in one province in China um, and probably began um, at a market where a lot of animals were crammed together in close confinement. So now I think it's easier. People have a context when you tell them like, hey, it's a really dumb idea to put, you know, two million chickens on one piece of property, you know, thousands and thousands of them in one shed packed in there in close confinement. Because if one of them uh, gets avian influenza, they're all going to get it. And each time it spreads, it has a chance to mutate. And it's such a risk. Um, avian influenza, you know, if, if it jumps to humans, becomes zoonotic, as they say, it's far more deadly than the coronavirus, the, the COVID-19. Um, so I'm hoping people will be m- more, will recognize that more readily than they did before. I hope so, too. And thanks for your uh, contribution to this. Now, one of your chapters has a subtitle that connects here. Trucking farm animals is an ideal way to spread diseases. You talk a lot about the transport issue. You talked about that with Ivan and you talk about it in the book. Where where does that piece come in? It's not talked about much. Yeah, it's um, I think it's it's more talked about in the European Union and they actually you know, whether these laws are enforced is a separate question, but they, for a long time in the European Union, have recognized this is a big concern when you're crowding together animals who can be from different farms and you're putting like, you know, 150 or 200 pigs on a semi-truck together. It's incredibly stressful for them. And when they're stressed, their immune system is not as effective. So they have they're exposed to a lot of pathogens and their immune systems weakened because it's a terrifying, stressful situation for them. Um, and it happens all the time in the United States. We're trucking pigs and other animals across multiple States sometimes. Um, and it doesn't take long, you know, it doesn't take more than a few hours, um, for pigs to be in a much worse state than they were when they were prodded onto the truck. Um, so yeah, it's something we need to be very aware of. And again, it's like, why is there a slaughter facility near downtown Los Angeles that kills thousands of pigs a day? Like, why are we doing, we're trucking pigs in across state lines into the middle of Los Angeles 
you know, hundreds of trucks a day um, so we can make bacon, um, a product that no one's got a good argument for any sort of human health benefit of this product. Uh, it's quite the opposite. So, yeah, the transport, I think it's an important piece. And like you say, it doesn't, doesn't get talked about enough. No. You also bring up something that I don't hear much. In fact, maybe I'd not heard this comparison before. And that is comparing the treatment of young animals on farms with child labor. Can you make that comparison for us? Yeah. And to me, I think the comparison is not comparing like a veal calf to a six-year-old working in a upstate New York fruit cannery in like 1895 or whatever. It's the comparison between the adults in the situation, um, the same sort of attitudes. Um, uh, there were people told themselves all kinds of platitudes and fairy tales about child labor. Um, well, this is, you know, they they have a widowed mother, like she needs to have this income from this six-year-old. There weren't that many widowed mothers to justify all of these kids in factories, you know? Um, but it was just so normalized and it was, and people had to tell themselves stories. Well, there's got to be, this has got to be okay for some reason. And, I, and we obviously do that with, with farm animals. Um, you know, people do not want to look at the really awful parts of practices that they're supporting. Um, and the people who make money off of these practices uh, obviously want to exploit that lack of transparency. And we're all guilty of it to some degree. Um, you know, like I try not to buy clothes that were made by um, a six-year-old in a sweatshop, but it's everywhere in, in the United States. Um, and, you know, you, you do what you can. But I, I wanted to sort of, I just thought it was a way to, to highlight the ways we delude ourselves about, things that are done on our behalf yes well well you did with this as as with everything else such a great job you actually reminded me of of scott nearing who was uh, almost 100 when i met him in my 20s and he was a, a vegan and animal person but was actually exiled from the U.S. Um, around the time of World War I for his opposition to child labor. <laughs> so things do oh, go wow. around and come around. I cannot believe that our time is up. The book is indefensible. Gotta read it. Stay with us through these messages and we'll be back. Are you looking for a new and empowering lens through which to view your life and your health? Then register now for Get Healthy with Sound, a weekend workshop with Eileen McCusick, an innovator in the fields of therapeutic sound, electric health, and the human biofield. May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn easy and accessible techniques to reduce stress, improve focus, and increase energy. Learn more today at eomega.org slash thrive.
thanks for joining us. This is Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Welcome back to Main Street Vegan with your host, Victoria Moran. Everybody, I always feel like at this time I should say welcome back, but that announcing person just said welcome back. So hopefully you won't feel as if there's a repetitive echo going on. You will just feel very, very welcome, which you are. And if you are a new listener, you can find out more about the whole world of Main Street Vegan at MainStreetVegan.net. And if you text the word vegan to 555 Four four four. You'll be on the list to receive our newsletter and our weekly blog. That is vegan to five five four four four. And if you are a regular listener and you appreciate our programming, please take a moment to give us five stars and some kind words on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, because those votes of confidence mean a lot and they help us get our message out. Thank you. So I am just tickled to be (laughs) introducing our next guest. He's someone that I just discovered uh, online when I was Googling something like, I don't know, yoga and vegan. I'm not sure (laughs) exactly how I found him. But Jeremy Gray, a better known in the community as Mr. EYG for continuous service to elevate his community and those around him, is an African-American politician, entrepreneur, and philanthropist. Representative Gray is currently in the role of Alabama State Representative, where he serves on the Commerce and Small Business health and public safety and homeland security committees and being a renaissance representative he is also the founder of elevate your grind a motivational and clothing brand and the curtis house a nonprofit organization that served as a resource hub in one of the most vulnerable neighborhoods in his hometown of opelika tell me if i didn't say that right Alabama and yoga is also a part of this communal experience. Welcome, Representative Jeremy Gray. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And Opelika is right. I would like to start off by just saying Happy Veterans Day. I know it's uh, a Veterans Day, and so thank you for all those who serve. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you for remembering that. So you are a person of myriad interests. And I think that was one of the things that fascinates me because I believe that it's kind of human nature to want to put people in boxes. And, you know, you've just lined up a whole bunch of boxes and say, you know, I'll go from one to another and then I'll go outside all of them. So give us just a little bit of of background. How did you become who you are? Well, um, by nature, I was just an athletic child. I'm growing up and some of the most vulnerable communities, you're just given a, a, a ball, right? Your sports is kind of like your outlet for you to let off your frustrations. It also allows you to 
attain a scholarship and, you know, be able to get out your situation. So I started off uh, just playing sports, being active, playing sports. And through that, I became a, a basically a three-sport athlete in high school. I was a two-time state champion in track and field, an all-state football player, and an all-area basketball player. I went on to North Carolina State University on a football scholarship, and I was a standout cornerback. From there, I, I graduated and I played professional football in many uh, places around America. I also played in, in, in Canada. Um, through just sports, it, it just took me far as I could go. And I had to essentially reinvent myself. And so I just got into community, community organizing, mentoring, and just trying to be a, a significant part of my community. And just through those efforts, I basically started a clothing brand and how I kind of started that clothing brand was, was around health and wellness. So me playing sports, me being a fitness trainer, me being really into health and wellness, it was an easy transition and the clothing was just a byproduct of that. From there, I wanted to be kind of just more invested into the place that I grew up in the area I grew up in. So I started the Curtis house and the Curtis house is my great grandfather's land that I converted and turn into a community resource center. We have an organic garden, we do yoga, we do workshops and programs. And just from there, I wanted to do more. And so from there, I became the state representative of the 83rd district uh, that covers part of Opelika. And if you're familiar with Auburn University, War Eagle, um, I, I represent that area as well. So just, I, I have an unusual path that I travel. I, I try not to, box myself into any idea. I'm always kind of open-minded about the possibilities. And just through that and through yoga and understanding just self-awareness and self-realization and just the power of a person, I was able to um, basically to be in this position that I am today. Wow. Well, the article that I read about you and the reason that we're talking right now is that I learned there is a law on the books in Alabama, if I'm understanding it correctly, that it is illegal to offer yoga, even just very physical downward dog kind of yoga, in the public schools in Alabama. And you are behind a bill to change that. So fill us in. Yes, ma'am. So I was elected in 2018. And so just doing a, some civic engagement and uh, went into a political science class and the, you know, the subject of yoga kind of came up and all the students kind of looked at me like it was kind of like taboo. And I was asking some of the teachers, you know, what's the deal with, you know, saying yoga, doing yoga. And I was I had became aware there was a 1993 ban on yoga in K-12 public schools. And kind of the premises behind it was it was a religion. It practiced hypnosis. They, they called it basically like, you know, it, 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 it would basically bring on demons. So it was this whole kind of stereotype around yoga. And so since I've basically been a yogi, I've taught yoga, I've done yoga for maybe like the last six or seven years. I even, you know, taught many classes. I decided to kind of reappeal the bill and so I started a process my first year, really trying to get it through the legislature. It was kind of new. It wasn't a new thing, but it was new that someone would try to bring it back up and really have knowledge 
about yoga. But so the first year, like anything, when you're trying to bring a new concept or trying to bring back a new concept, it got laughed down, right? And so I wasn't necessarily discouraged, but I, I wanted to figure out how I could spark their interest. And so the the next year in 2020 was was actually this year, I did a lot of research around the benefits of yoga, right? The mental aspect, the physical aspect, and how it helps people cope with stress and anxiety. And so from there, I was able to move the needle. And so this session, I got it out the house with the vote of was 83 to 17, but due to COVID, it didn't make it to the Senate because our session ended, but I had a Senate co-sponsor. It was a bipartisan bill. And so this next session in 2021, I think I have a good chance of passing and repealing the uh, ban on yoga in 1993. That That is so exciting. <laughs> I, I just love it that you'll have this legacy for the rest of your life that you, you were the man who brought yoga to all of these children. And it's just, it's such an incredible thing for, for kids, well, for anybody. But to grow up with yoga during COVID, I've, I've been doing yoga for, gosh, 52 years. But I took yoga teacher training this summer for the first time. And the teachers actually grew up in it. Um, they're two sisters whose parents were yoga, all that kind of thing. And to just see the ease, like they were talking about their their teenage rebellion. And they said, well, you know, we were we were brought up in yoga. And so we wanted to rebel. And we went to a Buddhist college. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought every parent's nightmare. <laughs> so what a wonderful thing. So uh, tell us about some of these these other things that, that are going on with you. Where did the vegan part enter in? So the so I had a, a few friends that I would do more like your your Daniel fast. And so at the beginning of each year, I would fast. I would do a 31 day fast. And through that 31 day fast, I would read the book of Psalms. And so I would read basically a chapter of Psalms. And the whole concept was to take something away. Right. And so I took beef away one year, pork away one year, chicken away one year. And I kind of kind of worked my way to being a vegan. I actually didn't know what was a vegan at first, right? I was just kind of um, trying to live a healthier life. I was feeling better. My energy was better. And the more that I read, I just gravitated towards being a vegan. So I've been a vegan the last, going on six years and um, next year. And so I, I like it from a more of a, you know, energy standpoint, uh, having a clear mind, clear body, and so I'm all about health and wellness. So, and that's how I kind of really got into a veganism. Wow, that that is that is so exciting. So, as you look around at at the world, and you know, there are all kinds of of uh, obviously difficulties that that we've all been observing, certainly in the past year. But I guess as long as humans have been on the planet, so where do you see yoga, uh, veganism, and and just some of these? Um, aspects of life that you have discovered, where, where do you see them fitting in and being of help? I, when, we think, when we think about small kids, adolescent children, when you think about the stress that they deal with, with bullying, cyberbullying, when you're talking about 
when we think about when I was a child, you know, we I didn't really know what stress and trauma was, right? And so we're living in this 21st century, and a lot of kids are stressed. They're 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 having traumatic situations. And so integrating yoga into those children for self-care and just teaching them just very minute stuff like breathing, right? Controlling your breathing. Count we, we tell our kids all the time, you know, count to 10, take deep breaths. So when you're teaching them that concept of basically learning how to neutralize your energy and using it for good and just kind of trying to process everything that you do and kind of think about it before you do it. I think that's very um, something that's needed in the schools and just for young people in general. When we, I mean, I taught uh, chair yoga um, for seniors and they very, they very much liked it because it was relaxing. It helped with mobility and flexibility. So I think yoga as a whole whether you're using it on a real micro level or a macro level is is good for for a to create a wholesome person. Yeah. As far as veganism, I'm down south and you know, it's a little different down south. We like our bacon and, and we like our beef and all those things. So that's going to be a challenge down south and you think about um some of the most obese states are Alabama, Mississippi because of our diet. And so that's been a tougher transition. You have places, you know, like Georgia, especially in the metro Atlanta area where veganism is basically picking up, but it hasn't really sparked a lot of people in Alabama. And so maybe I'm just, you know, maybe a crusader on that. (laughs) Well, somebody has to be first. And it's just great that that we're getting into so many walks of life, so many professions and areas where we're just there. And so people might not convert, but they at least know that there are some very um, intelligent and well-meaning people who are doing some of these things that for such a long time were considered different. So I want to ask you a little bit about your your spiritual life. I mean, you, you uh, talked about the Daniel fast, so I would take it that you're a, a Christian person, and yet you're able to appreciate and take from a, a discipline that grew out of the Indian culture and, and use that uh, in, in your yoga practice. So tell us about that part of your life. Yes, I, I actually grew up in the church, a, a Baptist church, um, my whole life. I mean, I was the kind of kid that had to go to church three times every Sunday. So I would go to Sunday school, I would go to church, and I would go to the afternoon program. And so religion was a very much part of just my upbringing and so me going to places like North Carolina State and Raleigh, North Carolina, it kind of opened my mind to other things, right? And a big thing, a big part of sports is yoga. So I was kind of introduced to it first um, through sports. And the more I kind of learned about it and, and the effects of it and I started practicing it, I was like, this is not really what people have kind of advertised it to be, right? This is more of, of connecting with yourself. And so I, I think that a lot of times we we, we try to say that, um, you know, when you do yoga, it's, it's really to unite with yourself. And to, to unite with yourself is to unite with God, right? Because essentially God is omnipresent. And so he's inside of you. So there's no way, better way to connect with yourself than to do yoga, right? Prayer, prayer could be, uh, considered yoga, right? It's a form of meditation. It's a form of 
being quiet and being one with yourself. And so I just try to, you know, pivot that stereotype. And so one thing that really helps me is just my upbringing. And I would kind of be like, uh, you know, you know, we talk about oxymoron, right? I'm, I'm, I come from an impoverished neighborhood. I play sports. You know, I would probably be the most likely person to have ever, you know, done or said that they practice yoga. And so it gives people a unique perspective because it's like, if he can do it, maybe I would want to try it as well. And so I, I think that this is a great position to be in. You know, a lot of times it's easy to group people together, but when you're the outlier and it's like, okay, he's doing it too. And he's cool as well. He's, you know, cause you know, you, you get stereotyped with, with yogi sometimes, sometimes they're considered hippies and all of those things. But when you have just regular citizens, well, they'd be athletes or politicians, it brings better insight to what yoga really does for a person. It's true. And I think anything that becomes popular, it becomes the subject of commercialization and being trivialized. My husband sent me a, a clip from one of the New York papers, one of the tabloids that was gifts for the yoga practitioner on your Christmas list. And with the exception of one kind of cute bracelet from Walmart that was only $8 <laughs> and would be really fun as like a little gift, all the other stuff was so silly. It was things like yoga dice and, and a yoga beer game. I don't really know how they connected yoga and beer, but I thought, yeah, it, it's very hard to have anything out there in the world and keep it pure, but I guess you have it within yourself and you keep it pure there. It's true. I, I can agree with that. So tell us about your life and your day. I mean, most people will never be an elected official and you've also got a clothing company and a nonprofit. How do you do your time management? Somebody was telling me, well, that's TM. And I said, no, that's transcendental meditation. I guess it's both. Yeah. Yeah, I guess it could be both, but I'm uh, just playing sports. I'm a very like time oriented person. So I get up uh, around like four thirty, five o'clock and I, and I do my exercise. I train people early in the morning. Then I, you know, I'm in an MBA program at Arbor university. So I, I make time to do that. Then I make time to do my legislative work. Then I make time. So it's all about me. It's all about having a schedule, right? So a lot of times when you get ahead of things or you wake up early, you're able to, and essentially manifest your day. And so one thing that yoga taught me was not to just get up in the morning, right? Kind of analyze your day, think about the things you're thankful for. And it's just like playing football. You have to have a game plan going into the day. And so I always have a game plan. I always have uh, strategic measures in place of what I want my day to look like. And every day I may not do everything that I wanted to do, but essentially I create a plan. And just by sticking with that plan and just making time for myself, for my business, for my nonprofit work, and being able to balance that, I think I have to really give credit to yoga because it helps me become balanced. And when I'm getting overwhelmed, I can use some of those coping mechanisms to basically say that, you know, you're here in this present moment. Don't worry about what happened yesterday. Don't worry about what happened, what's going to happen tomorrow. Just do the best you can do in this present moment. And that's what I pretty much spend my time on, trying to be effective and efficient in my space. 
So did you have to train yourself to get up that early? Well, I was pre-trained. I mean, I was kind of already trained to do it. Being an athlete, you usually have to wake up, wake up in the morning anyway to do morning workouts. So I think in a sense, you, would, you could say that I was already conditioned to be this way. I see. Well, I, I could see a book down the road, <laughs> something <laughs> about live like an athlete <laughs> and just use some of those, um, you know, some of those disciplines that most people think anything before seven o'clock is, is just like dangerous. You know, you, <laughs> you shouldn't be up then. And yet I, I've been learning that so much from yoga too. get up before the sun. Yes, to meditate. And my husband and I have been doing a thing a couple of times a week. You know, we're, we're in New York City, so we're pretty much locked down with, with the COVID. We don't really leave our neighborhood. But we're in a complex that has two buildings. And the other building across the courtyard has um, a terrace, a roof terrace, where you can watch the sun come up. And just to do that, even a few mornings a week to just remember, oh, yeah, this is a day. This is a gift. <laughs> you know, This is something to be in tune with. I don't think I was thinking like that pre-COVID. No, I don't think. I mean, you know, COVID really just makes you realize a lot of things, right? The value of life, the value of time, the value of family, that value of being connected with a person. And so I think that through this experience, people is just going to, appreciate the human experience more um, with technology you know sometimes we can be disconnected from one another but i think that COVID has really brought us closer together as far as a interpersonal uh, relationship with a human yes i think so many tragic times and tragic experiences it seems that that the cost is very very high and yet the benefit is is there so yeah i would agree with you so Representative Gray, I want to know about your clothes. Elevate your grind. <laughs> are these athletic wear? What kind of clothes are these? Yeah, so it's just athletic wear, you know, hoodies and warm-up suits and T-shirts. So it's just your, your common athletic gear. Um, I, I didn't have the envision of starting a clothing line. Uh, you know, a lot of times you have merchandise um, centered around your business, and it just kind of took off. And the message was that, you know, everyone essentially um, have have times where they seem like they fail in life. Right. And those are the times we have to pick ourselves back up and elevate. Right. Elevate mm -hmm. your grind and just be a better person, be more and do more, understanding that there will be those times where you'll be on top of the hill. But there are also times there you'll be in the valley and you and usually in the valley, you learn your lesson you know, you, 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 get, you get conditioned and you're prepared to go back up that hill. And so just elevating your grind it embodies all of that. Wow, that's really cool. So I was going to ask you toward the end, as we're getting toward the end, what, what's your message? What, what do you want to say to inspire people? I think you just did, but if there's mm -hmm. more, we want it. I, I would just like to say that, you know, the human experience, you know, people think think in a sense like, you know, the younger you are, the longer I'm going to live, right? We don't really think about our end, right? The whole point of being, uh, you know, a mortal human, right? You just, you know, at some point, you're going to leave here. And so as humans, I think that it's, it's our duty 
to be agents of change. And one thing that we have to do, we have to find purpose. And once we find that purpose, we have to spend the rest of our life committed to completing that mission. And so I just want to people to understand that, you know, life is real short, right? We see it, we saw it with, with COVID, we're seeing it now. And so I just want people to embrace this moment, um, live your life and get the most out of it. Because, you know, most of the time people say there's the day when you were born and the day in which you will die, but it's that dash in the middle that people will remember you. And so in that dash is where you're gonna do the work, right? And so at, at your, your eulogy, at your funeral, what do you want people to say about you? And that's kind of how I live my life. Wow. Well, well, your dash in between is doing all sorts of amazing things. So everybody, you can check out this amazing guest on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, Rep Jeremy Gray, and that's G-R-A-Y. So just in, in our last 30 seconds, what what's your mission? What are you here to do? I think my, my mission to is I'm here to inspire people, right? I'm here to be uh, an outlier, someone who, you know, come from humble beginnings and it was able to just climb this ladder. And so I just want to be an agent of change. I want to inspire people that no matter where you come from, you have the ability to change your life. And so it's all about playing the, the cards you're dealt but if you play them well, you can too make it. Oh, that's beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. And I just celebrate all, all your, your neighbors and your constituents who, uh, <laughs> who, who help your star to rise. So there's something to be said for just recognizing people who, who have something wonderful going on and something special to give to the world. So you give me a lot of hope and a lot of inspiration, and I'm sure you've done that for everybody listening. So thank you so very much. I hope we stay connected. Maybe we can do some Zoom yoga one of these days. Hey, I'm up for it. Just let me know. <laughs> oh, very good. Thank you so much. Thanks to both of our guests. Thanks to Unity Online Radio and our wonderful engineer, Jeff Comfort, for always making everything work. And to you, God bless you and eat your veggies. Thank you for listening to Unity Online Radio, the voice of an awakening world. Hi, I'm Jane Asher, and I believe, and from what I've been shown, that when our loved ones die, they don't really leave. They just slip into the next room. On my podcast, I explore the bigger picture surrounding life on Earth, and what follows when we do die. I speak with authors, friends, transition specialists, and other experts about every facet of death, dying, grief, hospice care, cultural traditions, and also our beliefs about that final journey and what we may end up facing. Please join me on the next room on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network or wherever you get your podcasts.